Amen. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. That was awesome. Thank you all for being here at Stonebridge. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and this is your final warning. Today is the second part in our uh, PG-13 rated Sundays. So for kids in third through fifth grade, or younger, actually, um, we've got more children-appropriate messages Uh, Third through fifth graders are released over to the cube, which is the trailer to the west of us here. Um, So go ahead and you can just excuse them to that. Um, Just like Matt said, though, last week, excusing your kids from this message does not get you out of having the sex talk with them, especially those third through fifth graders. I have a third through fifth grader, and I'm already hearing some of the things that he's hearing and seeing at, home, at school. And it's, it's sad at some times, but if he didn't have a, a biblical understanding of what sex is and, and all of that, like, it could get messy really quickly. And so we've got some resources available for you. Um, I personally love the, the, I don't see it on there actually, on one of them, online, for sure, on Facebook, there was a, a website, a, a link to a video of, from the Gospel Coalition. That was incredible. And even for us who have ha- started having that conversation with Deacon, it's, it was good to just start to fill in the gaps of where we might have missed something and just a really good primer of where to kind of start with these conversations with our kids. Um, yeah, last week, Matt did an incredible job of explaining from 1 Corinthians 6, the ending of, of why we are to flee from sexual immorality. There is no denying that we live in a sex-saturated culture. It doesn't take long, and we didn't, we didn't need to explain that to you. If, if anyone doesn't believe that, just turn on the TV for a minute or two. But it's helpful for us to not always just say, flee, 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 but to actually give the why. And that's what I really appreciated about the message last week was he really explained why we are to flee sexual immorality. The next paragraph, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 today, um, verses 1 through 7, so if you want to head over there. Um, this, that very next paragraph in 1 Corinthians 7 is not actually to flee sexual immorality, but now it says to embrace a full sexual morality in the context of marriage. Quick disclaimer for those of you who may be new or just not understand how things work here. We here at Stonebridge, we just preach through the text. We pick a book of the Bible and we preach through it. Now what that means is sometimes we get to tough topics. And 1 Corinthians has no shortage of tough topics for us. And so we're going to be preaching on sex today. And we preached on sexual immorality last week. And I love that we don't shy away from these tough topics. I'm not going to try to be crass, but we are talking about sex. It's funny, actually, that I'm the one up here preaching. Because for five years in youth ministry, I just always made Andrea do the sex talk with the teenagers. I never wanted to do it. I was like, I just... I'm going to say something inappropriate to teenagers. I'm going to get a phone call. You just take care of it. Then it's you getting the phone calls, not me. I also want you to just have just a thought. 
as, as we are going through this passage today and, and unpacking it, if you are sitting there at any point thinking, I hope my wife heard that, or I hope my husband heard that, and if that's ever your thought in, when you come here, like, oh, I hope they heard that, you may be missing what God is trying to say to you individually. It's okay to have those thoughts of like, oh, somebody really needs to hear that. But if that is your only thought through the sermon, you're missing what God is trying to say to you as well. I'm going to have one funny sex story, and we're going to dive into the passage for today. So like I said, Andrea used to teach um, purity and sex to the teenagers for me. So one year, she's trying to give this analogy to them. And we had heard this analogy. Somebody already giggled because they already heard it at Wednesday night. So she's trying to give this analogy that she'd heard from a pastor friend of ours. And he used the analogy of sex is like a fire. And fire in the proper place, in the fireplace or in a fire pit or somewhere, it's good. It's, it gives light. It gives heat. It's beautiful. But you wouldn't just start a fire in the middle of your living room floor. And so then he says, sex is like a fire. Within the proper place, it's good and it's beautiful and it can be really helpful. But outside of its proper context, it can be destructive. So Andrea's trying to tell that analogy, and she starts off with a room full of teenagers, and she says, well, you know, sex is good in the fireplace. I'm like, what did she just say? And I see boys start giggling and looking at me. She repeats it like three times. Like she's, she eventually worked out the analogy, but three times she tells these teenagers that sex is good in the fireplace. Oh, yeah. So that's, but I still kept letting her teach because I didn't want to teach about sex. So follow along with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. It says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, But each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. So he starts right off and he says, concerning the matters in which you wrote. That's an interesting way to start off a chapter. But the reason is because we can break up 1 Corinthians into a couple of different sections. And so the first six chapters were really stuff that Paul heard was going on in Corinth. Whether it was from people that had visited and came to see him or letters he was getting from other pastors that were traveling through, those first six chapters were all things that Paul had heard were going on. 
And now for the rest of the book, Paul is focusing on the Corinthians and him were writing back and forth, actually. These aren't the only two letters that were ever written back and forth to Corinth. They're just not all the other ones. Scripture. So they had been writing Paul, asking him, trying to figure out how to do a proper service and how to follow Jesus. And so the rest of the book is all of questions that the Corinthians had asked Paul. And just like last week, Matt talked about how there was the quotation marks in last week's passage. And he said that's those were, he was trying to quote the Corinthians with those quotation marks. That's what he had heard they exactly were saying. We see the same thing in chapter 7, depending on what translation you're reading from. You will see these quotations right there in verse 1. It says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's the quote, that's the question that the Corinthians were, were posing to Paul. Apparently, somebody in the Corinthian church is saying the best practice is just not to have sex at all. Sex is bad, don't do it, it's evil, stay away from it. The idea is that as they looked at the rampant sexual sin that was all around them in Corinth, they decided that the best option was just abstinence, just total abstinence. And they had taken it from just celibate singleness to now celibate marital status. And so Paul is looking at the Corinthians, he's saying, Okay, abstinence, that's good, that's proper in the path of singleness and single life. But married life is a good, proper path as well. And if you are married, you need to embrace the call to a healthy sexual activity within the context that God has given in that marriage. So Paul is giving us two good paths, either singleness or marriage. And neither of those paths are better than the other. They're just different paths. We have to ask the question, why does Paul need to give two, pro- two good paths? And for one thing, he's, he's trying to correct that incorrect Corinthian view, saying that there needs to be total abstinence. That's, that's why he's saying, like, no, this is, that view is wrong, so both of these are good, so we need to have a proper view abstinence in marriage is is ridiculous. Paul says in in verse 5 that there's only one time that a married couple should be not having sex. One time, he says, and that is if it's an agreed-upon time by both parties and if they're both devoting themselves to prayer. It's like Paul saying, okay, maybe just for a little bit, but only if you're focusing on God and then run back to each other quickly because y'all can't handle the temptation of not having sex. So you guys need to just for a short time agreed upon and then come back together. Regular sexual activity should be the pattern in marriage. So he holds up the goodness of life without sex as a single person. Look at verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I am. Why would Paul wish that all, that means single. Paul was single when he wrote this. Why would he wish that all would be single? Just think about what Paul accomplished for the gospel being single. He, 
He led thousands of people to Jesus. He planted dozens of churches across the known world. He preached hundreds of sermons in in front of some of the most powerful people. He didn't have to worry if little Johnny needed his retainer this week or didn't have to worry about supporting his family back in Rome. He could just focus on Paul and the gospel. That was all he had to worry about. So often in our culture nowadays, singleness is, is looked down upon. It's like you're missing something if you're single. When I went to Bible college, I had to take a class called The Family. And in The Family, they tell you that you're going to learn how to, how to be married and how to date and how to, the difference between dating and courtship and putting together a budget and having children and, and all of the stuff that comes with having a family. At this point, I was 29 years old with a married wife or a pregnant wife at home, um, and I had another child. Had a budget, owned a house, owned a car, all of that, all the stuff they were going to teach me how to do. So I go up to the professor, and I'm like, can I just test out of this? Can I just bring in my pregnant wife and say, yep, I got this. I figured it out. He's like, you're, no, you're not the first person to ask that. I'd appreciate if you stayed in class. You could probably help me a little bit. So as we're going through the class, one day he's talking about dating. And he's talking about how so many girls in that college came in just praying to find a husband while at college. And they'd come in as freshmen with these high expectations of what their husband was going to be. But then sophomore year goes by, and then junior year goes by, and senior year. And all of a sudden, they're looking at the end of college, and they don't have a husband, and all of their friends do. And how are they ever going to find a husband if they don't find him at Bible college? And so their standards have been lowered. And he looks at these students in this freshman level class, and he says, there are worser things in this world than graduating college not married. And I instantly shot my hand up. And I was like, yeah, like being 30 years old with two children, a wife, working a full-time job, going to school full-time, doing ministry part-time, it takes a lot of work. And I didn't mean I didn't love all of my family and my job and all of that. I wasn't trying to say that. I was just saying these kids, they could devote everything to, to learning and they could go on mission trips every summer and they didn't have to worry. They could do ministry nonstop. I didn't have that kind of energy. Being married and having kids takes an enormous amount of time and energy. Both singleness and married life, while both good paths, they, they both bring their own unique challenges and hurdles. In the day and age of Paul, there was two opposing views of singleness. One was that of the Corinthians who were remaining single. They said, we'll just stay single because we've got the temple prostitutes over here, and if we stay single, we don't have to worry about anyone or anything except for ourselves, and if we need to fulfill our desires, we'll just go visit the temple. No big deal. That was the Corinthian view. It's just better to stay single. And then the second position, they looked at singleness as a devalued position in life. In the Jewish culture, you have this marriage obsession. For the single Jewish male, you would have been severely disadvantaged. Marriage was your source of financial stability. Children were the source of inheritance. Your whole community status hinged on whether you were married or not. There were certain 
places in the temple you would never be able to get to if you were a single man. There were certain levels in the Jewish hierarchy that you would never get to if you were a single man. Paul is just trying to say that singleness is a good thing. Basically, Paul is trying to say that we must embrace the place that God has called us and to embrace the patterns within those places. If your place is singleness, we need to embrace the pattern of celibacy until marriage. And if the place you are is married, you need to embrace the pattern of a healthy sexual relationship within that marriage. For the rest of our time, I want to look at three practical applications that we need to embrace out of the, the context, out of the text of 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I've obviously just said celibacy is the proper way if you're single, and now the rest of the time I'm going to talk about marriage and sex, but if you're single, don't quit listening at this point because hopefully someday, maybe someday, you will be married, and this will give you a good foundation of what a healthy sexual relationship will look like. The first thing we need to embrace is God's good gift of sex. It is a good gift and beautiful gift from God. And this may take some reworking in our brain to not look at sex the way that we have in the past. Last week, we talked about how there are two usually opposing thoughts when we talk about sex. It's either this deified view, it's a God to us, or we have this demonized view, it becomes disgusting or even a chore to us. And this is the view that we most of the time have about sex. As with any of God's good gifts, the culture around us has a way of taking it and distorting it and mangling it into something that God never intended it to be. And that's a lot of what we talked about last week. And if you were not here last week to hear that sermon and you have not gotten the opportunity to listen to it yet, I beg you to go do that These two sermons were really, Matt and I worked hand in hand with these two sermons to try and get a whole view, a proper view of sex. The tone of 1 Corinthians 7 is instructive in regards to community and the way we all should view sex. And that is the normal pattern for the way the biblical writers often talk about sex. Sexual activity is mentioned frequently in scripture. The Bible consistently talks about sex as a good thing that God has given us. It's this beautiful thing that he has given us. But it also talks about, within the context of marriage, he talks about it being this beautiful, good thing. But then also scripture often talks about how destructive it can be outside of that context. All the way back to Genesis, we see the topic of sex. God's first command to Adam and Eve, go have sex. That is God's first command in scripture to Adam and Eve, go have sex, be fruitful and multiply. He's saying, go have sex. Like go, he's saying, go, go, go. I need you to do this. This is the foundational text on sex that God created man and woman to be one flesh, to be united a union between man and woman within the context of a marriage that God designed. From there, we can see 
dozens of passages from the front to back, all on either the goodness of it in marriage or the destructiveness of it outside of marriage. We shouldn't make it disgusting. It's not a gross thing, nor is it something we should deify. We need to embrace it as the good gift that it is from God, as long as sex is done in the proper context of a loving marriage. Neither of those views, demonized, demonized or deified, are compatible with what the Bible teaches on sex. We need to stop re- rejecting it and stop being scared of what sex is, stop being scared to talk about it with our children. We need to reclaim it and let the gospel transform the way we talk about it. A good, beautiful gift from God that we can share with our spouse. Next, we need to embrace the context where healthy sexual activity is to take place. Remember what Andrea says, right? Sex is best in the fireplace. No, I'm kidding. The main applicational point from these passages is if you are married, you should have sex regularly. Verses 3 through 5 says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. You see that right there in verse 5. That's the main point. Do not deprive one another. What these verses are saying is that sex should be a sacrificial act between a husband and a wife. It's not just about meeting my needs. It's about loving my spouse. Sex is about giving mutually, both of us. That is what is so wrong with the sexual ideas we find in the culture pornography, adultery, casual sex. They are all simply about getting our needs met. It's about what I can get out of this interaction. It has nothing to do with what I can give. Every single person on this planet is created in the image of God. And when we distort sex and chase our own selfish desires, we are ignoring the fact that that other person is an image bearer of God. Every image we have, every encounter we have, those people are image bearers of Christ. And we are using them. Sex is not simply about getting what I want. It's about loving our spouses. Next, sex is not something we hold over each other. Women, I'm going to start with you, but only because the text starts with you. I beg you, hear me out and know that this is coming from a place of love and wanting to encourage you all and help you. Um, Trust me, I'm coming after the men next, okay? Sex is not something that you should hold over your husband. It's not your card to get what you want out of the relationship. It's not... If I give him sex, he'll finally give me what I want. That's not the way sex was intended. So often I hear stories from women, and I hear stories from women like handed down of like that's how even Christian women sometimes view sex. 
And it's heartbreaking. Sex is a beautiful gift from God that we need to share together. Last time I was up here, I quoted Tom Nesbitt, so I, I thought it would only be proper, and so that it wasn't just me telling you, guys, telling you women to say that. I thought it'd be proper if I had a, a quote from his wife, Maureen Nesbitt. At a women's conference, she said to a, a packed house full of women, she said, why would you deny your husband what they want when it takes so little of your time and makes him feel so good? I love Maury. That's awesome. Any quote from the Nesbits is just worth, worth its gold, yeah. Men, your turn. What are you doing to pursue your wives? You cannot expect to work 12 hours a day, come home and fall asleep on the couch watching ice road truckers or staring at your phone, falling asleep and then crawl upstairs and climb into bed and expect your wife to want to have sex with you. What? What are you doing to pursue her? If you're not doing anything to make her feel pursued, why would she want to share in one of the most intimate acts we get to do with our wives? Put down your damn phone. Turn off the TV one night a week. Take one day off a a month. Send the kids to bed early and love your wives. It shouldn't be that hard for us. These are the people that we've sworn to God that we're going to love and honor and cherish. Pursue them. Make them feel important. More important than your phone and the TV and your job. Love your wives. As Tim Keller describes, sex is a way to say to somebody else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And if you use it to say anything else, it's a lie. It's a nonverbal piece of communication God designed. And it's meant to carry a message. God said sex is a way to give yourself totally to somebody else and to say, I belong completely and totally and exclusively to you. We can also see that sex is powerful protection. Sex, sexual morality within marriage is powerful protection. Because of the rampant pervasiveness in the culture of Corinth, and and let's be honest, around us today as well, a regular healthy sex life between two married people is the best protection against sexual immorality. Some of you out there right now may be praying for the, the sexual purity of your spouse. But what would be better is to actually have sex with them. I will tell you that this is always a very hard topic for me to share. And it's one of the main reasons I always used to punt it to Andre. It wasn't really that much that I was too awkward to have the conversation with the teenagers. I always felt like I'm standing up here saying, do as I say, not as I did. I definitely had a deified view of sex before I became a believer and and even after I got married. It's always hard for me to talk about the, the biblical mandates of sex because I know that it's possible that somebody who knows my past could stand up at any minute and say, you're a hypocrite. I know what you used to do. We used to hang out together. I was completely selfish. And I went down many crooked paths 
before God grabbed a hold of me. A biblical view of sex was one of the hardest things for me to, to develop because my mind was so warped and mangled by the, the culture and the images and the, the memories that I had. Trying to develop a biblical understanding was difficult. Paul's guidelines for sex and purity in these passages from, from last week and today are not meant to keep us from enjoying ourselves or enjoying something good. They are meant to protect us from a lifetime of broken memories and destructive thoughts and images that sometimes seem to get burned in your mind forever. Now, as with any sin, there is hope. No matter what your past sexual encounters have been, no matter what mistakes you have made, either in your marriage or in your single life, there is forgiveness for all sins, past, present, and future. All sexual sins can be forgiven. I know we keep coming back to the same passage, the same verse the past three weeks, but 1 Corinthians 6.11 is such a powerful verse. It says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There is forgiveness for sexual sin. The final thing that we need to embrace is that we should have a regular pattern for sex. Now, sex is not the center of Paul's vision on marriage. And 1 Corinthians should not be the only passage that we're going to to try and get an understanding of what marriage should look like sex is just what paul is addressing here because like i said it's what the corinthians had asked so he's addressing it sex is not the primary reason to get married working with teenagers you you tend to hear that mentality sometimes of like you're only getting married so that you can have guilt-free christian sex like that's not that's not right If that's your feelings, if that's the only reason you're getting married, you need a better understanding of marriage. Now, although sex is not central, it is vital to a healthy marriage. I know that there are reasons why a married couple may not be able to have sex for a time, whether it is a health reason or even just logistically, whether you're just going through a season of bad health, one or the other, or you're just not in the same state. It's, it's hard to have sex with your spouse if he's a traveling salesman and is gone from Monday to Friday. Like, that's understandable. But we can clearly see from 1 Corinthians that a marriage between two healthy adults where sex is absent is an unhealthy marriage. Now, when I say regular pattern, keep in mind that what is the regular pattern for one couple will be probably different than another couple. Some of you in this room are newlyweds with no children at home. (laughs) Some of you have little children that just always seem to be around, knocking on the door when it's shut and locked because they don't know what that means. What are you doing in there? What what are you doing? You don't want to know. 
Some of you have teenagers that seem to just be involved in everything all day long, and you're running from 6 a.m. to 8 o'clock at night, and you're just exhausted by the time you finally get home and crash. Some of you are empty nesters, and you're in that stage of life again. Different stages of life will have different patterns. The pattern for you as a couple needs to be talked about. It is not weird for a married couple to sit down and talk about their expectations for sexual intimacy. Communication, right? That's, we can communicate about sex with our partner. That's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. What I have come to understand um, as a pastor, that sex life is, is similar to a check engine light. When the check engine light goes off in your car, it typically doesn't mean that your car is going to die immediately on the side of the road. It's alerting you to something that may be wrong. But if you continue to drive for 10,000 miles past the check engine light coming on, and you've driven for 20,000 miles since your last oil change, things may get, you may have some serious problems, trust me. The check engine light is signaling you to something that is not well inside the car. Many times a broken sex life is a signal to something that is wrong within the marriage. It may be lack of attention. It may be past hurts and abuse that just haven't been fully dealt with yet. It may be unmet expectations within the marriage. It may be even some personal emotional issue. If you're stressed or anxious or whatever, it may be causing some issues in the sex world. The problem is actually this, but it's affecting the sex life. We also live in a a day and age and a time that's very different than our parents. We live in a time where it is, where extra time is non-existent. There is no shortage of things to take our attention from work to school to church activities to community activities and then you throw kids into the mix and you have crazy sleep schedules and sports schedules and pto and dance and the list can just go on and on and on if we live our lives constantly letting our children and the culture tell us what is most important we will lose focus of what is really the most important piece how do we have any, any, any energy left to give our spouses when we spend all week long running in opposite directions? Some of y'all are willing to drive three hours for a soccer tournament and then sit at that tournament for eight hours and then drive three hours home, but you don't have time for sex? God says that when we get married, that two become one. We are cleaved together. Our children being involved in sports is a good thing. Being on a local community board is a good thing, maybe. Having a successful career is a good thing. But if you are sacrificing your marriage on the altar of busyness, it is going to destroy your marriage. Sometimes we have to say no to the good in order to say yes 
to the great. Our spouses should be our first ministry. Your kids will eventually leave the house. Your job, you will eventually retire from it or switch jobs. I want you to have a marriage that is built on more than just having children and having a career. A marriage that is built on each other, that is going to last past all of that other stuff. A marriage that will last your whole life. Why is all of this so important to talk about in the Bible? Why does the Bible talk about sex? Why have we been up here for two weeks talking about it? Because sex is not simply a physical act. It's an an emotional knitting together of two individuals. It is something that I can give my wife that I can give to no one else. For a woman that sees me running 100 miles an hour and pouring out all day, every day to the church and the community and my boys, I'm constantly pouring out physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, This is the one thing that is for her and her alone. If you are sitting here today and the check engine light light of a broken sexual relationship in your marriage is, is going off, you need to talk to one another. You need to talk to your spouse. And then you need to reach out to someone and, and, and say, can, can you help us? Maybe it's Andrea and I. Maybe it's Heather and Matt. Maybe it's your connection group leader and his wife. Someone who you respect and who you feel has a marriage that you admire. And if you as a couple would like someone to pray with you for your marriage, Andrea and I will be available during this last song and and afterwards. I know that this is a very difficult step. It takes a lot of courage to say there's something not right. To turn to one another and say there's something not right here. It takes a lot of courage. And it's difficult. But it's easier than continuing down this difficult path of a broken sexual life and a broken marriage that may end in destruction. It is absolutely worth it to have this difficult conversation with each other and with someone else asking for help for the health of your marriage, for the, the health of your family, and for the health of this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these passages. Although they are difficult to hear at times, and it is necessary. And so God, I just I just pray for all of the marriages in here that they can go home and that they can truly take a look at what's going on and maybe they're at a good place and they are enjoying each other and praise God for that. But then help those people to just be willing to share with others who are struggling. Help us to come alongside one another. We deeply care about marriages and families in this church and that's why we keep discussing these topics. I pray that 
you can help us all to just truly reflect on where we're at and to reach out. Take that difficult step of reaching out for help and talking to each other. Thank you, God, for this good, beautiful, amazing gift that you have given us. Thank you, God. In your name we pray.